news is there's no children's church this morning. But would you open in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament to chapter 8? Hebrews 8, you'll find it on page 1188 in the Pew Bible. And we're looking at verses 6 through 13. Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. So here's, here's a passage that speaks to our desperate need for love. And, uh, and it answers it with the wonderful love of God, immeasurable, uncontainable, just as we've been singing about, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Hebrews 8, uh, we're really focusing on verses 7 through 13, but I'll start with verse 6. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, that is the Old Testament priests, as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the mediator of a new and better covenant. What amazing promises these are. And may our hearts be encouraged and strengthened and may our eyes be opened wider to the great love which you bring to us from the Father's heart. Amen. I am a, um, I'm an inveterate do-it-yourselfer. I, I love to, you know, Get, get into all kinds of, of, of uh, technical things. You know, if anything is broken, I'd rather fix it than, than buy a new one. It's, uh, it's fun. I enjoy it. It's a hobby. And uh, it's great because I, I can sort of deal with all kinds of situations, but there's a drawback. I can get myself in over my head very easily. The time I, um, you know, had the car all apart and I didn't quite know how to put it together and I spent all this money replacing all these different parts um, finally realized it, it was already fixed. I just didn't think it was fixed. Um, you know, but, but I figure, well, I, I'm learning something by it. Um, there's one area where it's hazardous to be a do-it-yourselfer, where self-reliance will come and get you and hurt you, and that's in your relationship with God. Don't be a do-it-yourselfer with God. So Children's Church is on after all. So I'm a liar. 
Oh, the choir, children's choir. So children's choir is, is on, but children's church is still not, not happening. All of a sudden, everyone wants to be in the choir. Uh, so, in your relationship with God, you can't be a do-it-yourselfer. This is what Adam and Eve discovered in the Garden of Eden. They tried to, you know, be autonomous and self-reliant, and it got them into it. Got us into all the trouble we're in. And this is what ancient Israel struggled with: is that they tried to be do-it-yourselfers, and so they had do-it-yourself gods, the, all their idols, and it brought nothing but trouble for them. And now the writer of the Hebrews is writing to these, uh, these people, these Christians who have come to faith in Christ from a Jewish background, and they're tempted to go back to their Jewish background, and they're tempted to, to hold on to the things that they've already received. And I think the big thing that's attracting them to Judaism is that they can make it into a do-it-yourself religion, which is never what it was intended to be. But there's, a, there's a, a strain of self-reliance in us. And God is calling these people to go ahead, to leave behind the familiar, because God has brought a new day, a new age for his people. And it's going to call them to live by faith, just as Abraham was called ahead to live by faith. So they needed to abandon the familiar and move ahead by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be self-reliant, but trust the Lord. The self-reliance is the way of death. And, uh, and I think this is the, the, the spiritual issue that this text is going to address today, is that we don't need to be self-reliant, that Christ undertakes everything for us. And so we're here, we're in the second half of Hebrews chapter 8, uh, uh, the Old Testament cries out for a permanent priest. And so the book of Hebrews in chapter 7 talks about how the Old Testament looks for, cries out, desperately needs, longs for an Old Testament priest and shows how Christ is that priest. The Old Testament cries out for a permanent sacrifice. And so Hebrews 9 and 10 talk about how the Old Testament has that longing and how Jesus fulfills it. And here we are in Hebrews 8, the last half, and this is where the Old Testament cries out for a new arrangement, a new law, a new setup, a new deal between God and man so that there can be a priest, a new priest, so that there can be a new sacrifice. And so what's needed is a new covenant. The Old Testament cries out for a new covenant. And the Old Testament teaches us just what that new covenant will look like. And so here uh, we have the longest quote from the Old Testament that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament here in the last half of Hebrews 8. It's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. It's called the New Covenant Passage, the New Covenant there are many passages in the Old Testament that talk about the New Covenant, but this is perhaps the most famous. And the writer of Hebrews really only wants to make use of two words. Out of this longest quote, he really only makes use of two words, and he makes another little point, maybe uses another couple words. But it's such a great quote. 
that he just leaves the tape running so that we can get some more things from it, which he'll refer to later in the book of Hebrews a little bit. So we're going to look mainly at, uh, at verses 10 through 12, where he's left the tape running and where we get some, some new material about the new covenant, what the promises are, what is the great hope, what is the great encouragement that Christ is undertaking for us and we don't need to be self-reliant. So the two words that he makes use of are just those words, new covenant. And he says, because the Old Testament, Jeremiah, says that a new covenant is coming, that already proves that the whole Old Testament covenant is, is ending. It's about to end. Once Jeremiah comes across with the words that God is going to make a new covenant, then the end of the whole Mosaic covenant, all the laws and the system of temple and priesthood and sacrifice, all of it is thereby declared obsolete. Jeremiah declared the Old Testament obsolete once he said that God was making a new covenant. And so those two words, new covenant, that's the main thing. The other thing he gets out of, the, out of this Old Testament passage is that the fault is with the people. What was wrong with the law of Moses? It was the law of God. What was wrong with the, the covenant God made with the people? It was a blessing. It was mercy. It was love. It was grace to Israel. What was wrong with it? The same thing that was wrong with the Garden of Eden. Nothing. Nothing was wrong with it. But the people were unfaithful. The people turned away. And so how can God make a covenant with people like us who are self-reliant and who turn our backs on him and go off and find our own way? We're like sheep and we go astray. But God desires a covenant with us and he will make it. And Christ undertakes what is needed to bring people like us into relationship with God. And so this is what we're going to look at. That because Christ restores his people to the Father, we should rely on him. So will you look with me at uh, verse 10? We're just going to look at verses 10 through 12. We're going to see that Christ restores his people to the Father's will in verse 10. That he restores his people to the Father's teaching in verse 11. That he restores his people to the Father's love in verse 12. So Christ restores us to the Father's will in verse 10. And uh, verse 10 just says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So that last phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's, that's the general idea of the relationship with God. That's the general idea of a covenant. But what's special right here, what's new, is not that he will be their God and they will be his people. That's always been there. That's always been what the covenant has been about between God and his people. That he will be their God 
and they will be for Him. But what's new in the new covenant, what's not like the old covenant, is that God is going to put the law not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. He's going to write it on the minds and on the hearts of His people. That it will not be uh, outside of them, but inside of them. We naturally wander from God. Would you turn with me over to Romans chapter 8? We naturally wander from God. This is our inclination. This is our, our sinful nature. Look at Romans 8, verses 6 through 8. And uh, Paul describes what the human condition is like in these verses. He describes it throughout the book of Romans in in different ways, in different places. But I just want us to recall what we are like by nature. And uh, so Romans 8, 6 through 8, the mind controlled by the flesh. I'm reading the the way it says in the margin. You know, the the mind controlled by the sinful nature. Mind controlled by the flesh is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The mind controlled by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. And that's how we are. We wander from God. We cannot please God. But God writes His law on our hearts. This is the new covenant. This is what's new. And uh, so here in Romans 8... We see that if you'll go up to Romans 8, verses 3 to 4, you'll see that God fulfills the law. He, call, he brings about the fulfillment of the law in us and through us through the new covenant. Romans 8, 3, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. God still wants his law to be fulfilled. And he is undertaking to make it happen by writing his law on our minds. He gives us a new mind, a new heart, we, we tend to suppress the law or we tend to use the law. We tend to either uh, run away from it and ignore it. And that's what the problem with Israel was all through the years. They suppressed the law. They ran away from God. They ignored his law. They put it behind their backs and they went off to other gods. And that's one problem. But the, the people that, that are receiving the book of Hebrews here, they have another problem. They don't run away from the law, but they, they use it. They turn it into a museum piece. They turn it into something that, uh, that they can work with. They turn it into a tool. And uh, so they turn it, it... It's like this. If you come, if the policeman stops you, if the policeman tries to stop you, there are two things you can do. You can either try to run away from him or you can try to bribe him. Is there a third thing you can do? You know, those are the two things that occur to us. Let's run away. Or else let's just try to, you know, bribe him and, and you know, get him on our side. The, with, with God and with God's law, we either try to run and hide from God's law 
or we try to turn God's law around, get our handle on it, get control of it, and turn it to our own ends and become the master of it. Neither one is safe. And what we need to do is submit. And God gives us that new heart to submit. And so um, what we need to do is to rely, to rely on Christ. He, he writes the law on our hearts and makes us new persons so that we're no longer, uh, no longer desperately trying to run away, no longer desperately trying to bribe God. My friend Paul uh, was, was driving me home. We were, we were talking and uh, the conversation was, was uh, not getting to a place where it was going to end. So he, he stopped on Orchard Street where I lived near the University of Wisconsin when I was a college student. And, uh, and we just sat as the car idled and we talked a little more. Paul was struggling. He had come to faith in Christ. He had put his faith in Christ. He was excited about what Christ has done in his life. But he couldn't quit his pot smoking. And he kept going back to it. And he would say, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then he would do it again. And he liked his pot smoking. And he didn't want to quit, but he knew he wanted to quit. And he was torn in two. And all I could see was that Paul kept coming back to Jesus. He kept coming back and listening. He kept holding on. He wouldn't let go of Jesus. So he found that his heart was unreliable, that his heart was going astray, that there was something new in his heart, that he was being drawn to God, but that there, was, there were still old things, that the change had not yet become complete, that it was still only halfway done. But he still kept holding on to Jesus, and I saw the change continuing to take place in his heart. Are you half-renewed? Are you partly renewed? None of us is as fully renewed as we will be when Jesus comes. The renewal we have in this life, the newness of heart, the writing of the law on our hearts, the newness of our minds, is always part way. And so Paul says we struggle with ourselves and we can't do what we want. We find evil at work within us, pulling us away from God's God's law and pulling us into darkness. And so we need to rely on Christ. We need to keep coming back to Christ. Keep coming back to the Bible. Keep coming back to fellowship. Keep coming back to the Word of God and prayer. And God will continue to work in our lives. Don't give up. Christ will change you. So verse 10, Christ restores us to the Father's will, to the Father's law. Christ also, in verse 11, restores us to the Father's teaching, that the Father teaches. Just as he was with Adam and Eve in the garden and he spoke to them and he taught them, so he will be with you and teach you. And you will have God teaching you. And you will have a relationship with God. And you will have fellowship with God. And you will know God. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be in covenant with God. And so he says in verse 11, No longer in the new covenant will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, 
saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And so this is the, this is the new covenant, that everyone in the new covenant knows God. It isn't a covenant where there are some people who know God and some people who don't, and they're all part of the same nation. The new covenant is not like Israel, which was sort of a mixed company. Some were believers, but they were part of the covenant, but they followed things externally. And some were true believers, and their hearts were renewed and they had faith. It's not like that. The new covenant is a covenant where everyone who is part of it is part of Christ and knows God. From the least of them to the greatest, it's not only the priests, it's not only the king who knows God, but everyone who is part of the new covenant community. Every one of Christ's people has the spirit of Christ and knows Christ. So teaching is not forbidden. You could read this, and some people have read this and thought that this verse says that teaching should no longer be done in, in the Christian church. Of course, uh, if that were true, then I'm doing something wrong being up here trying to teach you the Word of God. Of course, even the writer of this book would be doing something wrong because he would be writing in order to teach people. And uh, what does he tell people to do? <clears throat> Hebrews 10:24 to 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. <clears throat> so he's trying to get everybody to get out there and exhort one another, know the Lord, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not giving, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So teaching is not forbidden. Rather, teaching is blessed. Uh, in the New Covenant, teaching gains a kind of power that it didn't have under the Old Covenant because God comes and He teaches. So as Jesus said to His disciples when He sent them out to go and teach the nation, to, to teach all the nations of the world, and He said, I will go with you and I will never leave you. And so to the very end of the age, Jesus goes with us and He empowers our teaching. And so John, in his letter, 1 John, talks about the way that God teaches John's students. So 1 John, chapter 1, he says, We, as apostles, we proclaim him to you. We proclaim to you. Uh, this is 1 John 1, 3 to 4. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So John teaches people so that they will have fellowship with God. And if they have fellowship with God, what do they need John for? Well, John will still be there to keep reminding them and teaching them. Listen, listen it's even more clear. 1 John chapter 2, 20 and 22. You have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. Yes, you know God. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. And John says that anointing teaches you all things. And so remain in Him. So God comes 
as we do our part in teaching one another, God comes and teaches. He makes himself known. Listen to this promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. God makes himself known to people. Did you know that Christianity is about knowing God, having a relationship with God? Listen to what Jesus says. His disciples are puzzled. Why are you going away? Why do you only show yourself to us? What about all the other people in the world? Whoever has my commands, John chapter 14, verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So Jesus says, you know, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going away, but I'm sending the Spirit. I will come to you, and I will be with you. Fellowship with God. And Jesus says, uh, I will come and dwell with him, and the Father will come and dwell with him. So there's this promise of God's presence with his people. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's presence in our lives. Christianity is about a relationship with God. But what do we do with it? What do we, what do we uh, turn it into? Don't make Christianity into a philosophy. Now, I think it's great for us as Christians to do philosophy and to think about thinking, to think about knowledge, to think about life and truth and the world and being and all the great questions and to do so in a Christian way and, to, and to, to make a real Christian philosophy. But that Christian philosophy is not Christianity. It's only philosophy. Uh, don't make Christianity into a political system. I suppose you people are not in danger of, of be, making Christianity into a political system. But it, it's always a temptation. It's a perennial temptation for Christians through the ages that we want to turn Christianity into politics. Now, our temptation is probably to not think Christianly enough about politics. And we sort of let politics be its own thing. But, uh, but both are errors. Christianity is not politics. Christianity is not philosophy. Christianity is not a ladder to climb up to God by doing good works. Don't turn Christianity into something else. It's a relationship with God. It's knowing God. Don't turn Christianity into a self-help regime. Now, Christians ought to do self-help. If there's legitimate self-help to be done, Christians should learn discipline. Christians should you know, learn to understand themselves and to work through their problems just like anybody else needs to. But you don't need to take that self-help and just tack on a few verses and say, now that's what the Bible teaches. No. Christianity is knowing God. Go do your self-help, but do your self-help knowing God. And maybe you're going to have a whole different perspective on what self-help is about. Maybe you're going to have an entirely different perspective on what it means to work through your problems because God is with you and you have real purpose and real meaning that many of those self-help gurus have yet to understand. And that solves many of our of our deepest problems, doesn't it? So don't make Christianity into something else. Christianity is a relationship with God. The patient looks weak 
and pale. He's struggling to get his drink, and so I give him a little help. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Pastor, I could feel people praying for me. And, uh, you know, I I always feel a little funny when people tell me that because I know you can't feel prayers. You can't feel my prayers. My prayers are addressed to God. God hears them. And uh, you can't feel them. I think what people are saying when they tell me that, the way I translate it in my head is, Pastor, I felt God's presence when I really needed Him and when I was really frightened and I really felt I was going to be abandoned and I didn't know what was going to happen. I felt God's presence and I felt so unworthy. And that, that very feeling that I felt when we've been together in a prayer meeting and we're praying for one of our brothers or sisters in need and that sense of God's presence and His goodness and love, it was there for me when, when I was going through those hard times. And uh, God is related to you. God is with you. And you know the Lord. And you don't need someone just to teach you to know the Lord. But God himself comes as you hear the word and makes himself known to you. Do you know anything of this? Do you know the Lord? Let me do just what the passage says no one will ever do anymore. Let me tell you. Know the Lord. Come to know the Lord. You can. The door is open. Christ is coming to you. He is calling on your heart. And he wants to make you to know the Lord. So come to Christ. Know the Lord. Christ restores us to the Father's will. And Christ restores us to the Father's teaching. We're not just taught by men. We're taught by God. We have a relationship with God. And Christ restores us to the Father's love. Our wandering breaks love. Our wandering is the worst kind of betrayal. It's the most vile treason. It's the most blatant adultery. We wander from God. We sin against the one who sees us and who loves us and who knows us. And we despise his love. Our wandering, our sin, is the dog biting the hand that feeds him and then biting the children. Our sin is so terrible. It breaks love. But God says he will break our sin by love. And so look at verse 12. Hebrews 8 and verse 12. And he says, uh, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God undertakes in Christ to wipe away our sins. Christ has done it. There is a a permanent sacrifice. There is a sacrifice that completely cleanses and takes away sins. God is not going to let your sin stand between you and Him, but He is going to deal with your very sin, your very wandering, and He's going to heal you of it and take it away. That's the gospel, that God overcomes your sin. So don't you let your sin drive you away from God. Don't get discouraged because you sinned again and say, oh, I guess I can't be a Christian anymore because I sinned again. What? You think God never realized you were a sinner? 
why do you think he sent Jesus? Why do you think Jesus died on the cross? God knows you're a sinner. And he has set out to break your sin, to conquer it, to wipe it away, and to win you back from it. That's what Christianity is about. That Christ restores us to the Father's love. Don't make Christianity into a magic pill that lets you continue to sin and then just take some, you know, take communion or take whatever it is or go to church or, or pray your prayers or have your quiet time and then you say, well, the sin is, is done with now. You sin and then you just come back and confess and, and say, oh, well, the sin is gone. Now I can keep sinning. Don't make Christianity into a magic pill. Christianity is a relationship with God. Christ comes and saves. Rely on Christ. Trust in Christ. Keep coming to Him. Well, uh, we need to rely on a Savior who is doing all of this for us. A Savior who, who undertakes everything for us. He's not going to let us go. He's not going to let us be lost. But He Himself comes and gets us from wherever we've wandered and restores us to the Father's law. However perverse our minds and hearts have become, He writes the Father's law on them and renews us. He's not going to let us be far away, but He's going to bring us into relationship with God so that we're taught by God Himself. He's not going to let sin hold us at arm's length from God. He is not going to allow a barrier to remain between us and God. He is not going to allow God's love to be withheld from us, but He is going to wipe away our sin. And this is what He did on the cross for all time. Christ has set out to restore, to redeem, to recover, to save. Will you be saved? Will you put your faith in Christ? Rely on Christ. Trust in Him. Trust in Him alone. Listen to how Jesus describes Himself. He describes Himself as a shepherd. A shepherd who is so glad, so happy that He found His lost sheep. And this is what He does for you. He comes looking to find that lost sheep. Luke 15, 4-7. Suppose... One of you has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Oh, hang on to Christ. And when He brings you home and sets you down safely, you're not going to be boasting and bragging about how clever you were to come. But your eyes will be fixed on your Savior who loved you so much that He came and found you, even you, even where you had wandered to. Let's pray. Father, work in our hearts. Remind us of your faithfulness, your love, your grace, your goodness, your truth. Teach us to hold on to you, to rely on you, 
and to never turn away. Oh, renew our hearts through the power of your word. Amen. Well, I'd love to, to receive.